Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about crisis, and we're going to talk about some relatively recent contributions to the political theory of crisis in Andrew Gamble's Crisis Without End, question mark, and Wolfgang Streak's Buying Time, uh, both books that came out in the mid-teens, uh, books that came out in this kind of window where it looked like maybe the crisis of 2008 had been resolved. Barack Obama had been recently re-elected in the United States. Uh, The conservatives under David Cameron were going to be, in 2015, uh, re-elected in the UK. And there was a feeling that maybe the crisis had kind of ended. But there was also a lot of reason to think that maybe it was still going on. Maybe it was still continuing. And this prompted both Gamble and Streak to around the same time, in their own ways, think about what it might mean for a crisis to be a little bit of a longer thing, a little bit of a bigger thing than it's often conceived as being. And the alternative view, I think, would be Reinhard Koselleck's Critique in Crisis, a much older book in which Koselleck posits a crisis uh, A political crisis is a kind of moral dualism that opens up between the morality of the people and the morality of the state, the values of the state and the values of the people, and that there's this period of latency where this moral dualism develops, and then it comes to a head and explodes in this moment of agonism and crisis and uh, existential character, this moment with existential character, where the state either survives or it doesn't survive. It either adjusts to the morality of the people or it crushes that morality. Uh, Something has got to give in in that scenario. There's a moment of truth, a moment where everything comes to a head, and it's dualistic. It's between two elements, the state and the population. By contrast, when you look at Gamble and Streak, you see conceptions of crisis that are a little bit more complicated than Casalac's. There's discussion of there being maybe more than just two elements. So, for instance, the state is often is positioned by Streak as kind of uh, an actor which is managing both the uh, wage earners and the investor class. So there's you know, a standard Marxist class division, and then the state as this entity which is trying to create legitimacy for itself and mediate these two entities. In Gamble's work, there's all of this discussion of a kind of background environment around crisis, the system of power in the international sphere, which influences the way it plays out, the institutions in particular states, which influences the way it plays out. And this distinction Gamble draws between episodic crises, crises that are over and done with in a moment, and these long-term structural systemic crises that might have many different phases and false dawns and eyes of the storm in them. 
Uh, and both both Gamble and Streak kind of went in this direction of viewing crisis as an arc, as something which has lots of different phases, lots of different uh, signposts in it. And uh, in my own work, of course, I talk quite a bit about crisis. Crisis is one of the concepts that comes up in my own uh, recently completed PhD. And in a similar way, I am quite interested in this longer view of crisis. In my thesis, I like to think of crisis as a television series. So people can think about different elements of a television series and situate that as where crisis is. And the standard way of doing it is to think of an episode, a singular moment, where there is straightforward stakes and they get resolved one way or another. You know, the episode of a TV series as where the crisis is. But you could also think of a crisis as a season of TV with an arc running across it and multiple different episodes that make up that arc. And the state is having a trajectory over the course of those episodes with previous episodes affecting in a kind of serialized way what happens in subsequent episodes. And furthermore, you could also think about there being multiple seasons, there being multiple periods of elongated crisis, what in my thesis I like to call chronic crises. The season is like a chronic crisis, and the, the show itself is, like, is, is the regime. And the regime has many different chronic crises, which consist of many episodes of crisis. And the seasons have an impact on each other, too. And one of the things that's distinctive about seasons is that once you get through one season of crisis, once you survive one elongated period of agonism, it's much more likely if a show gets through one season that it will be picked up for a second season or a third season or a fourth season. Uh, once you demonstrate your ability to deal effectively with one period of crisis, then you will be given opportunities to deal with additional periods. And in some extreme cases, we get shows like The Simpsons that are 30-plus seasons along. And if you look at a recent season of The Simpsons, if that were the first season of any other show, there's no chance it would be picked up for a second season. It would be viewed as not good enough. But because there's such a storied history of The Simpsons being a good show and worth watching and able to successfully deal with seasons of, of episodes... It continues to get renewed on the basis of its reputation, even though it has long since become less than what it used to be. And perhaps regimes are also like this. Perhaps regimes that have long storied histories of dealing with problems, perhaps we start to give them a lot of extra rope that we wouldn't give younger regimes that are more nascent, that have not yet proven themselves. Uh, so those are a few kind of initial thoughts to kick things off. And as we go through, we're going to dig a little bit more deeply into some of these conceptions of crisis because they're very contemporary. We're going to talk a bit about the contemporary situation because it's germane to both Streak and Gamble. And I think along the way, we're also going to have some fun with the concept of crisis and, and what goes into it. So, Edmund, uh, you took a look at both Streak and Gamble mm -hmm. for this week's episode. Who did you think has the more interesting way of framing the crisis? Yeah, I think that Streak's account is quite attractive on the grounds that it starts with um, 
trying to get to grips with what capitalism is and going from that to what kind of crises uh, capitalism uh, allegedly unleashed uh, in the 70s and um, from 2007 to 2009. Uh, though Gamble does deal with the 30s, there is a sense, I think, in which uh, Streak's account is built on a social theory, a theory of social order, uh, which is, uh, I think, rather compelling. He argues there are three main actors um, in the main crises of the past few decades. He thinks it's uh, states, uh, markets and classes and the ways in which states, markets and classes interact is uh, basically the engine of prosperity and the engine of crisis. I think the way in which um, Streak doesn't just isolate the financial crisis, but tells the story of the financial crisis as an episode in the uh, broader structural crisis, to use Gamble's term, of uh, neoliberalism emerging from the crisis of the 70s. And in doing that fine-grained analysis of how the 70s led into... Um, the financial crisis and how it's all uh, encapsulated within this logic of buying time where the crisis is instead of being um, taken on at face value and addressed right now the crisis is always delayed it's kicked down the road the state does the bare minimum to be able to keep going. Yeah. Or as David Runciman says in his book, The Confidence Trap, it muddles through. Yeah. Without really showing quality along the way. So it's very unsatisfying. Yeah, yeah. And th there's perhaps quite a lot of similarity between Gamble and Streak's account on this sense. Gamble says that the, the structural crisis is um, always postponed and that if it's not dealt with, then the crisis uh, will just keep reappearing in different forms. Uh, I think Streak is more pessimistic than Gamble about how we might um, either address the crisis uh, right now for Gamble or, um, in Streak's language, instead of buy time, gain time, and uh, address the crisis in a way that does not just catalyze another crisis, because one of the central features of Streak's account is how the crisis of the tax state and the post-war tax state um, through the oil crises of the 70s and stagflation and then the rise of public debt um, and the rise of the debt state, uh, that temporary solution led to a new um, nascent crisis in the 90s, which led to the quick creation of the consolidation state and the rise of more deep financialized forms of capitalism. Um, but that in turn led to the financial crisis. And both Gamble and Streak think that the 
underlying causes of that crisis have still not really been addressed. And they think that the solutions are um, rather patchy and not thoroughgoing enough to really overcome the problem. And, um, you know, if nothing else, the current solutions of relying on uh, central banks for maintaining interest rates at a stable level and um, at maintaining or encouraging liquidity um, in other banks and in the wider economy. That strategy itself is something that looks like it's not necessarily going to be sustainable ad infinitum. It looks like it's something that maybe, I think, another way of buying time. But I think the interesting difference is perhaps... um, in their levels of optimism. Gamble thinks that we can overcome the structural deadlocks. He thinks that uh, there are four broad pathways to the future globally, a future where we stay on the same path and stuff um, is okay, but gradually gets worse. And if we don't encounter, um, as Grace Blakely, a follower of Wolfgang Streak in many respects, argued um, in her book, Stolen, in uh, How to Save the World from Financialization in 2019, if we don't face, uh, she predicted, some kind of bursting of the bubbles of non-financial corporate debt, something which wasn't addressed in the financial crisis because the financial crisis was about finance, but the corporate debt bubble uh, was not one of the things that was addressed. Um, And you know, even if these other bubbles don't burst and cause enough trouble to cause a, a an escalation of the crisis to a more acute level or to uh, Kalecki's momentous decision between the morality of the people and collapse, uh, we face climate change and the broader problem of the great acceleration in the post-war era. So there is that uh, pessimism to both their stories, uh, but Gamble suggests that an alternative would be some kind of US-Chinese-led world. Streak has also recently suggested this kind of option um, where the US and China act as joint hegemons, though... If that doesn't lead to some kind of military conflict, as we discussed in the last episode, a prediction of John Mearsheim is that China will translate its economic power into military power. This seems like something that will hardly be an engine of stability. And even if uh, you could have a stable US-Chinese bipolar order, in the transition to that order, there could be an awful lot of destabilising conflict. And the other scenario Gamble suggests is multilateralism. not necessarily US decline, but some kind of um, balanced multipolar world world order. And that seems to be where he is placing uh, at least some of his bets, which I think is an interesting suggestion, but I'm not sure how uh, Gamble envisages that working in practice, given that one of the central problems that uh, 
streak picks up on is the ways in which the present system punishes states for going it alone and punishes states for making the innovations that might be necessary to solve the present crisis. Whenever states, for instance, try to do hard redistributive mechanisms of solving the crisis, um, when, for instance, Mitterrand tried to resist the uh, pull of the US and the UK towards neoliberalism in the early 80s, France was punished by uh, currency speculation, um, currency depreciation, and the threat of capital flight, which led him to back down. And this kind of process looks like it might be a, um, yeah, I think an obstacle. A fraught, a fraught process. Yeah, and an obstacle to some kind of multilateral utopia. Yeah, a lot of lot of interesting thoughts there, Edmund. To kind of zoom out a bit, right? The the kind of core difference I think is that Streak is coming at this crisis from within the point of view of a grand theory that's informed by Marxism and Habermas, mm. and Gamble offers a kind of survey of options, and he tries to avoid overcommitting to one particular path. Mm. And he entertains lots of different premises, whereas Streak is more thoroughly committed to a particular theory mm. of how society is going to develop. He's more, more thickly committed. So I, I think it might be of some help here to talk a little bit about how, because both of them do this 30s, 70s, and now framing, where there's a crisis in the 30s, a crisis in the 70s, and then a crisis now, and these crises are all connected to each other in some way and lead to each other, it might be worthwhile to spend a little bit of time giving the audience a little bit of background on that process. Mm. Um, Because we haven't really on the show to this point done this kind of narrative of the 20th century, these narratives of the 20th century and how they lead up into now. Mm. Uh, And could be worth worthwhile, I think, to talk a little bit about this. So in the case of, of Gamble, Gamble thinks that the 30s are quite distinctive because they're a case in which the international market order collapses. And this is he means this in the sense that you have all this international trade and international intercourse, which occurs before the 30s and especially before the First World War. And much of this international intercourse collapses because you get a lot of protectionism that restrains trade. But also beyond this, the monetary system collapses because in the 30s, the gold standard, which had been prior to that point, with a brief suspension in World War I, the dominant monetary policy mechanism, is done away with. So the international order on currency goes away, and the international order on trade goes away. And in this collapse in international order, with much less economic intercourse, there's much more space for individual states to take leading roles in trying to structure their economies because they don't have to worry about money moving out of their economy if their uh, local wealthy populations don't like the policy because it's much harder to move across borders in the 30s and 40s because you, if you move to another state, you're potentially moving to a state which is your enemy in a war or has a, a fundamentally different ideology from the state that you come from. 
it's not very easy to hop in the 30s from Britain to Nazi Germany uh, or from Nazi Germany to the Soviet Union. These states have fundamentally different structures and fundamentally different strategies for managing their economies. And the state has this very enlarged role in this period because of that lack of international exchange. It gives the state more of an appearance of agency than usual. And during this period, you get a lot of literature about what this all means, especially from Marxists who had previously regarded the state as kind of redundant and lacking a whole lot of of capacity. And all of a sudden, the state has now stepped in to restructure capitalism, to rescue it from the crisis of the 30s by uh, means of both fascism and New Deal-style Keynesian liberalism. Uh, And the post-war order that emerges from World War II is designed to preserve to a large degree this new settlement in which the state performs this kind of neocorporatist function of mediating between the market and the investor class and the wage earners, right? Or to put it in more strictly in terms, the owners and the earners. The state positions itself as the mediator between the owners and the earners in the post-war era. And its ability to do this is premised on there not being a whole lot of international intercourse. So you get quite significant trade restrictions after World War II. Uh, and you also get the Bretton Woods system to peg the currencies, the European currencies, to the dollar. And in this way, maintain a level of currency stability. And what this means is that for this Bretton Woods system to work, the United States has to continue to inject investment into Europe. And that means the United States cannot be trying to pull currency back into it, which means it can't be spending more than it's, it's throwing out. And so the United States in the post-war order is physically constrained by its role as the guarantor of everybody's currency which means it can't go into a huge amount of debt, at least not without disrupting that role. And because there isn't a whole lot of trade, and because the states also have capital controls, they have the capacity to close their borders and prevent money from flowing out of their territory. It's very hard for either the workers or the owners to cause a lot of trouble in response to public policy. And this gives the state this feeling of a significant amount of agency. And Streak in particular really views this as the period when democracy was running the show, when we had democracy of some kind. And while that democracy in the post-war era had lots and lots of flaws, as the critical theorist tradition that Streak comes from detailed extensively at the time, for Streak, there was some level of, of democratic state management of the economy. There was some level of democratic control in the post-war era, and therefore there was some level of potential of making some kind of further progress. And the loss of that democratic control is the loss of a lot of potential to further confront the capitalism that Streak is opposed to in all kinds of ways. And of course, what happens to bring an end to this post-war system is that over the life of 
the post-war era, there is a gradual liberalizing of trade. They gradually reduce the tariffs that are introduced after the war, which allows capital to flow a little bit more easily. Capital controls increasingly get abolished in the 70s, which again allows it to flow more easily, which creates more of an incentive on states to do things to attract capital and attract investment. And then uh, there's also a breakup of the Bretton Woods system, because in the Nixon administration, the United States wants to spend on great society anti-poverty programs and on the Vietnam War. And that would require it to, for the first time, run a sizable deficit, first time since World War II, run a sizable deficit. And the only way it can do that is by abandoning its position within the Bretton Woods system and cutting the European states loose. And that's what Richard Dixon decides to do over the course of a weekend at Camp David. He just guts it and leaves the Europeans to figure out a new monetary situation, right? Uh, Now, that isn't enough to collapse the international economic order, because even though the United States has pulled out of the monetary system, you are still getting throughout the 70s a reduction in capital controls and a reduction in tariffs, and we are still moving toward a world where there's more economic integration rather than less. So whereas in the 30s, there's this collapse of the international economic order in which both the order governing the currency and the order governing trade break apart. In this case, these two things go in opposite directions from each other. And in the 30s, there's this continual pressure for the state to service the market and the investor class. And this pressure comes from the series of additional crisis moments that occur in the 70s, the series of additional episodes. So we've not only got the Nixon shock in 1971, but the year after that, Richard Nixon is up for re-election and he wants to get re-elected. So he spends extra money to drive up the growth rate to encourage his re-election. And that generates a level of inflation, which is aggravating to the wealthy who do not want to see their assets reduced in value by inflation. But with a large growth rate, that inflation isn't as troublesome. The trouble is that in 1973, we get the OPEC oil embargo in response to the Nixon administration's policy in the Middle East. And that sends inflation way, way, way up, while at the same time reducing growth substantially. That's the first oil shock. And that oil shock fuels more mobilization of the rich against the post-war order. And The rich, in their view of it, the trade unions, because the trade unions do not accept a reduction in living standards during these periods of stagnation plus inflation, stagflation, because they won't accept a reduction in living standards, they are positioned as the cause of the problem. So even though there's this kind of multi-step process, the United States has spent money on the Great Society in Vietnam, which of course increased inflation, then Nixon did extra spending in 72 to get reelected, which increased inflation. Then there's an oil shock, which further increases inflation. The narrative coming from the rich is that the obstacle to whipping inflation is the unions because the unions will not accept that this inflation means they have to take a reduction in their standard of living. Now, when Nixon goes away, he's replaced by Ford, and Ford spends most of his presidency engaged in relatively conventional, standard Keynesian inflation management. 
When Ford is defeated in 76, he's defeated by Carter. And Ford in polling was coming up in 76. He was doing better in the polling. And if the election had been held a bit later, he might have won. Uh, But when Carter comes in, initially, Carter is inheriting a situation where inflation is higher than he would like it to be, but it's not extraordinarily high. The trouble is, in 1979, some years into the Carter presidency, a second oil shock occurs because the Iranian revolution happens, and that sends the oil price up again and inflation up again. And that second oil shock damages even further confidence in American institutions and in the post-war system and in the post-war expert class. That confidence has been reduced both by economic shocks like the two oil crises and by things like Vietnam and Watergate, all of which continue to chip away at the generalized credibility of the elite class. So Carter, in response to that second oil shock, appoints Paul Volcker as chairman of the Federal Reserve. And Volcker's strategy is to raise central bank interest rates to increase the cost of borrowing money, which will make it harder for people to borrow money and use that to finance additional consumption. That pushes down consumption and thereby drives down the inflation rate. The cost is that by increasing the borrowing cost, it also makes it very difficult for businesses to hire people and to maintain the people that they have hired, and it results in large-scale layoffs in 1980. Those layoffs in the the 1980 recession make it impossible for Jimmy Carter to be reelected. He's replaced by Reagan, who is committed to doing a harder and more aggressive version of the same policies, but positions this as change. So when Reagan sends the interest rate up even higher, teaming with Volcker to send it up even higher, in 1981, that sends America into an even deeper recession that's even more severe. And in the 1982 midterm election, the Republicans face a massive setbacks, massive losses in 1982. In 1983, Reagan panics and U-turns and returns to a Keynesian policy of doing more government spending. And in 1984, there's an economic recovery brought about in part by the stimulus policy in 83, but also by the fact that by this point, oil prices have come back down. There's been a glut in oil and Oil is now once again plentiful, and that has a very uh, deflationary effect, which helps to push down inflation while also promoting growth. And once Reagan wins re-election in that cycle, it appears that Reagan has secured uh, the legitimacy of a new way of doing business in which the investors are favored and the unions are opposed. And some people frame that as kind of the end of it, that then we had neoliberalism and, and then it's done. The wonderful thing about Streak is that he doesn't stop there. He digs quite deeply into the stages of the neoliberalism that we get here. So Streak says that in an attempt to sustain the economic conditions of the post-war era, we first resorted to inflation. And inflation was a kind of attempt to maintain the living standard for the ordinary person, even as it became increasingly impossible to maintain. Once we move away from inflation, because inflation becomes unacceptable to the rich, the state moves to borrowing. And if you look at government borrowing in the 80s under Reagan, it expands very, very rapidly. So instead of the state running up a lot of inflation, the state instead borrows a lot of money and uses that money to sustain government programs, even as it's cutting taxes and diminishing its revenue. 
So the state in the 80s is able to lower taxes, and that gives in investors an injection of money without running down public services because it continues to deficit spend. And in this way, it's able to legitimate the tax cut because the tax cut is happening before there's been major, major reductions in public spending. The reductions in public spending are going to come much, much later. The state is going to come up with all sorts of ways to put money in people's pockets without raising their wages, because raising the wages would not be advantageous to the investor class, and raising taxes on the investor class is also not something that can be done here. Uh, And when George H.W. Bush says, we've run up too much debt and deficits, I want to try raising taxes instead— He gets a lot of blowback from conservatives in response to that because he had said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he went the other way. And so the consequence of that is that Ross Perot runs against him as a third party candidate. There isn't a whole lot of energy or enthusiasm for Bush in 92 and Clinton gets in. And when Clinton gets in, there's an attempt to continue the tax the, the tax hike policy and the balancing of the budget. There's an attempt to do this, but instead of do, using major tax increases, the main function is going to be cutting of public services. So in Bill Clinton's case, there's going to be welfare reform. There's going to be all this other stuff. At the same time, there's going to be this injection of borrowing, There's got to be borrowing to make up for the money that otherwise would not go to the consumer. So to fuel the consumer boom in the 90s, you get this stock bubble where investors, because there has been very low taxes on investment and because there's been all of these measures to put money in the hands of investors, have huge amounts of cash to play with. And they're using it to promote, uh, to buy lots and lots of tech stocks and speculative stocks. And this is producing large-scale employment and wage increases of some degree in the late 90s. But this isn't sustainable because the growth in the stock market in the late 90s is not based on anything real. It's just because there's all of this extra money in the hands of the investors chasing after too few genuine investment opportunities. And so the stock bubble bursts, and when it bursts, there's then a redirectment of this investment into the housing bubble, which then bursts in 2008, where, wherein the investors buy mortgage-backed securities, expecting them to increase in value forever because land increases in value forever, or so they believe. And this is what Streak calls privatized Keynesianism. So he draws a distinction between the inflation era, the public debt era when the state was borrowing lots of money, And the era of privatized Keynesianism, where instead of the state spending the money, the state will make cuts, but there will be injections of stimulus into the private sector. And the private sector will then lend that money to the consumer through the mortgage Mm. and through credit card debt and through student debt. Colin Crouch's term, privatized Keynesianism. Yeah. Yes, yes. The term originates from Colin Crouch, who uses that in his 2011 book on um, the strange non-death of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Streak picks that term up from Crouch. Crouch's book comes out, I think, three years before buying Mm -hmm. time. And so you get these kind of three different phases. And the issue is you need some way of getting the ordinary person 
the resources that they need to drive the consumption, which ultimately fuels capitalism for streak. But it's become impossible to do that through sustainable wage growth. So first it's done through inflation, then it's done through the government borrowing money, and then it's done through the private sector borrowing money Mm. and through private individuals borrowing Mm. money. And ultimately, post-2008, this borrowing is financed by quantitative easing, which is the central bank printing money. Printing money and using that printed money to buy bonds, often government bonds, and thereby support the government continuing to do some level of stimulus. Now, as a matter of practice, fiscal stimulus has never been very high. The government didn't do huge amounts of stimulus, even when it had the backing of quantitative easing. And because of this, the quantitative easing ended up being more privatized than you might have originally thought it might be. Instead of financing a lot of government borrowing, the quantitative easing has tended to end up in bank balances, sitting with the banks, and then also fueling a lot of additional investment bubbles. Over the last 10 years, you've seen cryptocurrencies, you've seen commodities, Mm -hmm. um, you've seen the emerging markets, a lot of different bubbles. And quite recently, the stock bubble, when the stock bubble became even larger than it was in the late 90s. These bubbles driven by all of this money that's kind of sitting in the private sector that hasn't really been tapped by the state because the state has, for political reasons, struggled to do really big fiscal stimulus. And some people would go, well, Benjamin, what about the $2 trillion that's been spent on coronavirus? Uh, and I, I would say to you, if you're thinking about that, uh, the major difference here is that the scale of the anticipated recession right now is so large that proportionally the $2 trillion is actually smaller than the $1.2 trillion that Bush and Obama combined spent mm. if you add TARP, the Toxic Asset Relief Program, uh, up with Barack Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. If you add those two bills up, it was about $1.2 trillion to combat a contraction that was about 4.3% of GDP. And in this case, while the United States has recently spent $2 trillion, we are anticipating a contraction that is much, much larger than 4.3 or even than 10 or even than 20 or even perhaps 30% of GDP. Mm. So compared to the contraction, it's a much smaller stimulus package. Mm. And this is despite the central bank coming out and saying, we believe there needs to be a lot of, of fiscal action. We believe that the United States needs to spend a lot of money and we're willing to buy the bonds. Uh, Despite that, it's been very difficult to muster the political will to get this money spent. And Gamble, in his book, speaks at some length about this, about there being different beliefs in the United States about the extent to which the United States can just deficit spend, and different beliefs about whether you can actually use quantitative easing to do this without producing ginormous amounts of inflation. Hmm. And for this reason, there's been a caution about how much stimulus is spent. And I wouldn't say that either party really believes that you can spend and spend and spend because the Democrats, while they are more interested in using quantitative easing to finance stimulus, still ask for much less stimulus than you would anticipate given the size of the contraction. 
And the Republicans are even more skeptical and, and even likely to oppose stimulus outright. So there's been a political resistance to using the central bank in the way that it's being proposed the central bank might be used to get these states out of the crisis. Mm. It isn't straightforwardly the case that the central bank has been able to play the role. But along the way, as, as we've been kind of running through this crisis, uh, the, these series of crises in this narrative, it's important to note that other states have been getting into situations where they've tried to deviate from the incentives that this system creates. And when they deviate from those incentives, they are faced with capital flight or what Streak calls capital going on strike. And what this means is that if they don't conform to the behaviors that are expected of them, they will be denied the investment that is necessary for them to generate economic growth. That will make the regime look incapable, the government look incapable at securing adequate economic growth, which becomes the basis for its electoral defeat. And this is a kind of disciplinary mechanism which compels the governments to continue to service the needs of the investors, mm -hmm. because if they deviate, there will be this, this capital going on strike mechanic. Mm -hmm. And so when Streak is looking at all of this, Streak is very hostile to the central banks because he sees them as just another way to keep capitalism going. So he's quite critical of quantitative easing. And Streak thinks that the closest that we've come to actually making progress on this question of managing this crisis is during the period when the national democracies were most powerful and most capable of engaging in some kind of intervention behavior. Mm. So Streak has a tendency to argue that the solution is to return to national democracy on that basis. Uh, that position, of course, is not the most popular mainstream left position. Uh, and it, it differs from Jürgen Habermas's position. Habermas, who, of course, comes from the same intellectual tree as Streak. Mm. On the other side of it, you have uh, Gamble, who has tended to look for the solution to this in new configurations of the international order. Mm in new ways of constructing the international order and its international institutions. And he's often looked at to this as something that could happen as a result of changes in the balance of power among states. Mm. In part because, you know, while there are areas where Gamble is optimistic, he doesn't seem to be very optimistic about U.S. domestic institutions, not very optimistic mm. about it. He discusses the possibility of what would happen if the United States were able to overcome its gridlock and remained in the driver's seat. He, he mentions it as a possibility, but there's a lot of skepticism on Gamble's part that the United States is domestically prepared to take to do what's necessary to take on that role. And I think uh, that's... The, the, there's a big question here about the solution, uh, whether the crisis is something that needs to be resolved by the return of the nation state or by a transition to some other kind of international order or supranational order. Someone like Jürgen Habermas is, is thinking very much in terms of a federal state or a world government as an end solution. Mm. And a federal European Union is perhaps a step in the process of eventually moving towards some kind of world government 
as a solution. But it's it's that solution seems kind of far fetched because politically the European project doesn't have the same kind of steam that it used to have in the nineties. The streak project looks difficult because if you're an individual state and you try to deviate from this, then the disciplinary mechanisms kick in and capital goes on strike and you pay the cost of that economically and then politically. Mm. Which leads me to think that one of those scenarios that Gamble considers has got to be the one that is closest to what's most likely to happen. Mm. But it's kind of hard to say which one. Yeah. And I also think it's, it's worth noting here that because there are all of these international effects that are being taken into account, because both Gamble and Street conceive of this crisis as a crisis of international political economy, which states are interfacing with. So states are dealing with this international economic system, and they're also dealing with this internal legitimation need to, you know, for the government to get reelected. And so the states cannot pursue possible solutions to the international economic problem that conflict with the need to compete electorally in the domestic space. Mm. And this lack of alignment between the domestic politics and the international order very much restricts the set of possible solutions and tends to result in a buying time thing or a kicking the can down the road thing where the state reacts on an episode-by-episode basis without really any kind of long-term strategy for either dissolving the order or reconstructing it. Mm. And I think that's what Gamble views as most likely to happen. And that's why the book's title is Crisis Without End? Question mark, Not Crisis to be Solved by U.S. and China. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because the book has got that question mark at the end and posits that as the, you know, the thing— I think part of why Gamble does this and, and has that question mark at the end is that the idea that it could go on that long is so foreign to what the way we usually think of crisis. And even the way he thinks about the crisis of the 30s and the 70s, they're long crises. Yeah. They're elongated. They're about 10 years long. But they do end for Gamble. Mm. For Gamble, those crises do end, and then you get a new one later. And those crises have a relation to each other, but you can speak of meaningfully of beginnings and ends for Gamble. And Streak instead frames it as one big, long, continuing crisis of capitalism, mm. where there's never a stable equilibrium point, And you're always sliding from one way of buying time to another way of buying time, with the possible exception of the post-war system, which Streak does seem to have some genuine fondness for, not because I, I don't think he, he views that as an end, end state goal, but as having had more promise or more potentiality insofar as the democratic instrument was stronger in that period. Mm. And Strick puts a lot of faith in the democratic instrument. But, yeah, in, in Gamble's case, there's this thought that maybe this crisis will go on much longer than the crisis of the 30s or the crisis of the 70s because it doesn't seem to have a straightforward, clear and that is structurally possible for it. And when Streak talks about where it might go, there are periods when he says, well, surely we won't put up with this forever. But there are also periods where he says, well, surely the system will just grow ever more Hayekian over time. Hayekian for Streak meaning 
fixated on what services markets, first and foremost. And won't eventually this kind of market logic and market ideology just dominate our subjectivity so thoroughly that we accept it? But how could that happen? How could we accept it? There's a kind of contradiction that Streak willingly plays with in that book, where the continuing marketization is positioned as kind of inevitable, but also unacceptable. And there's a a lack of of willingness on Streak's part either to say that we can ultimately overcome it or that we can't. Mm. And I think that's in part because there's a real agony, uh, agonism for Streak over the possibility that it might not be something we can overcome. Because if it isn't something we can overcome, he finds that to be so terrible because of his substantive position Mm. as a Frankfurt School Marxist. He finds that to be so thoroughly terrible that it's not something he can he can straightforwardly admit as possible, mm-hmm. though he does regard the Habermas project as just not something that can happen, mm. as fundamentally unlikely to occur. I think for Streak, there's a greater chance that the national project could occur or could be tried. The problem is that it doesn't look like it can work because capital goes on strike in response to it very effectively. Yeah, yeah. So it's more likely politically that the national project could be tried than the Habermasian project Mm. of integration, of greater integration. Streak's project is more politically tractable than Habermas's, but it has this political economy problem that there is too much leverage on the part of of the capital owners. They have too much capacity to cause too much trouble for the project. Why do you think it is that Streak says in his book simultaneously that capital going on strike is such a big factor in state policy. And then he says that, oh, but when it comes to creating, um, as he puts it, nation states as stumbling blocks on the downhill slope into an otherwise single market state purged of democracy and so long as the best is no solution, the second best is the best, are his concluding words to the book Buying Time. Uh, how is it, do you think, that he engages in that cognitive dissonance, saying both that capital flight matters and that, ah, but the nation-state can, th- by throwing a spanner in the works, sufficiently disrupt the system to lead to some kind of new status quo? Is it some kind of... Uh, constraint of Streak's theory or normativity, or is it specifically his uh, view of the evidence, his view of the situation is such that he just can't see some kind of Habermasian project of integration happening? I think that's definitely part of it. You have to, to, to understand Streak's view, you have to take as a premise that the Habermasian integration project is dead, that it's a kind of living in the past at this stage. Yeah. That the people who are buying in it are ju- uh, who buy into it are just kind of wasting our time and distracting us with something that is totally fanciful yeah. and out of step with where European politics is. So yeah. once you buy that as a premise that that's just off the table, then your choice is either between this uninterrupted process of ever increasing marketization, or some kind of of 
kamikaze nationalism, a kind of nationalism yeah. which cannot succeed, but which could cause so much disruption in trying to happen that it would bring down the international market order and precipitate the kind of crisis which existed in the 30s, which created a new opportunity for states to get control. Right. And I, we can tell stories about how something like that might happen. For instance, Edmund, you think it's quite likely that if China continues to rise, there will be some kind of conflict between China and the United mm, States, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If that were to happen, that would probably be very disruptive to shipping, at least in the Pacific. And if it were very disruptive to shipping, well, that would make it very difficult for this whole system to go on. Mm. And if you had major disruption to trade, that would produce so much economic disruption that there would be opportunities to further disrupt the economy in other ways and to blame those disruptions on the war. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and we could imagine there are a lot of nationalists being elected who are what I call aesthetic nationalists. They are um, aesthetically nationalist, but they don't actually change the international economic order. They continue to participate in the trade system and don't seek to revise it substantively. But they behave differently. They act differently around mm. it. Uh, that could eventually lay the groundwork for a more substantive kind of nationalism that is more committed to this stuff, but not able to sustain a state on its own terms. Mm. And that, that's where I think the shift is from aesthetic nationalism to kamikaze nationalism, the kind of nationalism that would produce large-scale disruption. Because for Gamble, the, the thing that ultimately you would need to restructure the international order is a collapse in the international market order similar to what you got in the 30s, because it's the collapse of the international market order that stops capital from moving around and therefore re-empowers the state to trap it. Yeah, yeah. So for both Gamble and and Streak, because you're not going to have some kind of... uh, The only kind of integration I think that Streak thinks we can have is an integration which intensifies the marketization that is already occurring through the integration process. Mm. And that we're not going to get some kind of pure or better integration that rectifies these things. So if integration can only be more market, then the only way to not have the market continue to take over more and more and more in the kind of Habermas and streak, you know, notion of colonization of the life world by the market, that the market is just invading everything mm. and taking everything over yeah. and making everything into a reflection of itself. If, the, if you don't believe that you can restructure the integration to check the market at the scale of the world, or at least at the scale of the regional continent, the only other move available to you would be to disrupt that integration to the point where it can't continue. Yeah to just keep throwing more and more disruption and more sand in the gears until the system breaks down, relying on the crises that come out of capitalism along with natural disasters like climate change and pandemics to cause enough disruption that there's some kind of fracturing. And out of that fracturing, get some kind of new possibility. It's reminiscent of some of Nietzsche's discussion in his later life of how there needs to be some kind of great disaster to break up the nation state in his view, because Nietzsche did not think freedom came out of the nation state. He thought it came out of ancient cities uh, and thereby create new space for the ancient city. That as long as you have the nation state, the nation state will be too obsessed with promoting its own national 
unity. And therefore, it will produce this stifling culture comp, which will prevent genius from emerging. Yeah. And therefore, for Nietzsche, you had to break the nation state in a, in a war to reopen space for the ancient polis. Hmm. And in a similar kind of way, I think Street calls for the international economic order to break and to be disrupted in to produce a chaos from which the nation state can reemerge as the most comprehensive and solid thing that is remaining in the field. Mm. In much the same way that Nietzsche imagined that once you broke the nations, the most comprehensive units that would be left would be those small cities, those small communities. Yeah, yeah. But since you can't imagine there being any kind of voluntary return, and you also can't imagine any positive transformation of the larger unit, then the argument becomes break the larger unit and and get it out of some kind of desperate situation. I think it's a big part of why anarchists are very attracted to primitivism. Anarchists who want to go all the way back to the small community are very attracted to a huge disaster, because a huge disaster is the most plausible story by which you would get back to the small community. Mm. And you don't need a disaster that's quite that big to get back to the nation state. It's more plausible that we would have a disaster that returns us to the nation state than a disaster which returns us to the city state or to the village. And that is, I think, realistically, a lot of the time when there is some kind of disaster, a lot of anarchists get excited and they think that maybe this is going to be the return to the community. But what's much more likely to happen is that there would be a return to the nation state because the nation state is much better organized than the community to take advantage of a crisis like that. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, at the end of the day, that much of a gulf between gamble or streak? Um, or is it the case that just as Streak thinks that as it's not possible to pursue political integration, the best we can hope for in a globalised world is economic disintegration to return us to the nation state. Uh, Gamble, of course Gamble isn't optimistic about US politics and none of Gamble's four scenarios are about political integration. They're all ways of managing the multi-state system in some way. And Gamble suggests that the US-led unipolarity, nothing fundamentally changes option, that's not a great path because the problems don't get solved and we end up um, through a combination of build-up of economic debt and the ecological debt that uh, post-war capitalist states have accumulated, you end up in some kind of possible... uh, streaky in the moment where stuff does start falling apart uh, at a global economic level. And it's kind of the same with the G2 option because of what we just discussed about the possibility of US-Chinese tensions leading to some kind of breakdown of the global economy eventually in combination with all these other problems. And then there's the multilateral governance option, which, again, that seems to be not really a a long-term answer at all. If you've just got a multilateral system, then you don't really get any moves from any given parts of the system 
to solve. If any given part of the system tries to solve these crises, then they may be a victim to capital flight. And if a coalition of states does it together, then you need some way of having international agreements on stuff like if climate change is still an issue, then emissions reduction or action on tax havens. And you need some kind of enforcement mechanism for those global agreements. And that then raises the spectre of political integration. But because both Gamble and Streak think that nationalism is too strong for that kind of project to happen, this is also the reason why John J. Mersheimer thinks that uh, that kind of political integration uh, process of escaping international anarchy isn't feasible. Gamble's last scenario, we're left with this last scenario of US decline and just a gradual decline of the whole system. There doesn't seem to be any real scenario in Gamble's set of circumstances which leads to anywhere other than basically a Streakian scenario of the global economy eventually at some point um, faltering and or falling apart and then some kind of scenario where protectionism and climate change lead us to a world either of nation states or nation states and other kinds of um, states weakened by economic and ecological crises. Yeah, I think I think you have a case there. I think the main difference is in the normative attitude. For Gamble, the word is decline. And, and the reason the word is decline is that Gamble thinks that there is some kind of value in fixing this order. Mm. And, and fixing it not in the sense of creating some kind of Habermasian world state or more perfect European Union, but fixing it in the sense of finding a way to, through international cooperation, the same kind of liberal international cooperation that we've been doing for quite a while or trying to do for quite a while, mm. sustain it more or less as it is. Yeah. Whereas Streak has a much more thoroughgoingly hostile attitude to the whole thing. So the, I think Gamble is looking for a way to avoid the Streak outcome while viewing the Streak outcome as most likely. Yes. And I think that's part of why there's a question mark at the end of that title, Crisis Without End. Is there a way to not have this? Is there a way to get out of this? Mm. And that's why you know, the, the bipolarity and the multipolarity are pitched as, as other ways, other ways that it might work maybe. Maybe we could still have international cooperation and it wouldn't be a return to the nation state with these other ways. Mm. But ultimately, I think Gamble does in that book think that something like the streak outcome is most likely. But I think his attitude to it normatively is entirely different. Yeah, yeah. Whereas streak is almost like, like Heidegger or Nietzsche in that streak is, is excited for a new way of being to be opened. Yeah. It, and he's willing for there to be some kind of experience of, of dis disruption to birth this new way of being that is not expressly market driven. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a bit accelerationist in a sense. He's trying to heighten those contradictions and get us to a stage where we just get through these crises as fast as possible and then get out the other side and the other side might be a new fresh load of crises but 
we will have at least got beyond the current sclerosis. We'll have got unstuck in some way, and they'll be, yeah. Well, and we would, for streak, we would have our states back. And for streak, having our states back means we have some kind of possibility of freedom, which would otherwise be extinguished by the Hayekian project. Yeah. But of course, the problem with that is that though a collapse of the economic order could plausibly lead to a 30s scenario of lots of protectionism and nationalism, (laughs) there's also the risk of climate change fracturing lots of nation states, particularly ones close to the equator, like China. Yeah, there's a very high price to be paid for Streak's vision. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to look at this and and have Gamble's response and go, well, why would you want to subject us to all of this for the possibility that something new might happen? Mm. But uh, again, Are are you that bored that you're willing to tolerate that level of disintegration Mm. and the consequences of that level of disintegration. Yeah. But Gamble's position isn't actually different. Gamble just wants to buy time. Gamble doesn't actually have a Habermasian solution of political integration around this problem. He just thinks we can buy time through a propitious balance of power. But I think Gamble, in this respect, is like David Runciman, in that Gamble thinks all you ever do is muddle through. All you ever do is buy yeah. time. All we've ever done is buy time, and that's all we can do. And there isn't going to be some final moment where we end up with some better state of affairs. But eventually, eventually we get to Gamble's scenario four, which is decline followed by some kind of transition to something new. All of Gamble's scenarios lead to scenario four, and scenario four is the decline option. It is the option which leads to some kind of fragmentation of global capital mobility at some point. Yes. And I think at this stage, there is a kind of growing consensus around those who look at the world realistically uh, that there will eventually be some kind of fragmentation. Yeah that there isn't going to be the necessary adjustments or adaptations to prevent that fragmentation, and probably the the point at which those adjustments could have been made, if they ever could have been made, is now many years behind us, and probably more years behind us than we realize. Yeah. Probably in the 90s, in that moment when the United States was riding high, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and there was an opportunity to reorganize the world. In the, in the Clinton and Bush era, when the United States was really riding high and started to think, what could it do with, with this hegemonic position? And then it decided to completely squander that situation with the interventions in the Middle East, which were extremely costly and a large distraction from everything else it might otherwise deal with, and just allow this privatized Keynesianism to occur in the background without really paying any attention to it. Mm. Um, that was probably the period in which there was, an op- there, there was a theoretical opportunity whereby if the United States were not so thoroughgoingly committed to this, mm. it could have potentially, potentially gone in some other direction. But 
I don't think that was realistic. Mm. I think that the closest we came to there being a different direction was George H.W. Bush in in the in the early 90s raising taxes yeah. because that's what he you would have done in the 70s because George H.W. Bush's political career began in the Nixon and Ford administrations back in the in the old days in in when you still had some, something of the post-war era left. Yeah. And Bush looked at what had been done and he said, "Well, you know, we can't keep doing that. And he tried to, to govern like a 70s politician. Yeah. And his political career was annihilated by that attempt. And the Republican Party learned a, a painful lesson, which is that the 70s are dead and you, you can't do things like that anymore and survive politically. Yeah. And not only the Republican Party, but you know, by that time in 92, the Democratic Party had also learned that it needed to play along or it wasn't going to be able to win. Mm. And I think really from 92 forward, that was kind of the decision point. Mm. If there was any other possibility, and it might have been that there was never any other possibility. But if there was room, I think 92 was was where where it was. Yeah, yeah. Although, by the 90s, perhaps at the latest, the capital labor bargain, the rough balance that Streak describes between the state um, legitimating itself to owners uh, and earners alike, that balance by the 90s had already shifted into an imbalance decisively in favour of capital. And given the absence of 70s conditions of trade union activism, and given the role of the policies of the late 70s and the 80s in weakening unions and with the interest rate rise in general, harming the capacity of labour to mount an effective challenge to capital. The fact that by the 90s you didn't have this imminent threat from below, you didn't have any visible distributional conflict going on because you had this shifted balance in favour of capital, but labour being kept on by um, creating new stories to tell to workers about why they should keep on consenting to the order, um, as well as buying time and making it look as though this was just as sustainable um, as the the previous order. It seems unlikely that in the absence of that threat of distributional struggle, that the state in the 90s would have gone further than it did in. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think a lot of that stems from how in the 90s, uh, that the thing that made me think about 92 was that that was after the Soviet Union had collapsed and there was kind of a moment when the world, when people were thinking about how the world might be remade and what it might look mm. like because the Soviet Union had collapsed. And there was George H.W. Bush and he had not thoroughgoingly committed to this and was a candidate on the ballot in 92. 
But by 92, Bill Clinton was the Democratic nominee and Bill Clinton was committed to cutting public services yeah. as a means of continuing to service this project. And I think in that respect, he was to the right of George H.W. Bush by a considerable ways in 92. Hmm. Uh, and I think if you want to... If you want to be a little bit more demanding from an electoral standpoint, I think Reagan's re-election in 84 very much seals the deal. Yeah. Uh, and it would have been, it was, it was a fluke that George H.W. Bush was around in that period trying to do that kind of politics. It was a strange historical fluke. He didn't really belong there. Mm. And when he was, you know, when Clinton campaigned against him in 92, it was all about how he didn't really belong. It was all about how he was this kind of weird, aristocratic person mm. who didn't really, didn't really fit the period anymore, who had kind of come up in the political system of the 70s and then got an appendage to Reagan when he lost in the primaries in 1980. Even though he'd called Reaganomics voodoo economics, he'd got an appendage to Reagan because he was the compromise VP choice. And on that basis, he was able to get the nomination in 88, but only on that basis only because of the affiliation with Reagan. And by that point, it was already far too late. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think probably at, at best 84. And I, you know, I also think that there's a strong argument that that post-war system did not have nearly enough stability to be the basis for the project that Strix imagining, mm. that the kind of democracy that we got post-war was never going to last long enough yeah. and was never going to really provide the basis for something better. And that really, you know, what happened in the, in the 60s with the creation through this very, very rapid economic growth and this shared prosperity of a young generation that had elaborate, you know, retro-futurist way out their utopian ideas about where things should go. Uh, that, that population we often think of as the population that drives change. But really what happens, of course, is that in the 70s, none of those changes materialize. Mm. If anything, everything gets much worse because you get stagflation, you get collapse in real living standard increase. Yeah. And so what happens in the 70s is that the left and the radicals just kind of keep running off into space when the ground has collapsed out from under them. And it takes them a while to catch up and realize this. And I think we're still taking a while to catch up and, and realize this. You know, the, the, the left theorists of this are, are still very much trying to think about the world in a post-war way. Yeah. And they're still trying to live in the post-war era to a very large degree. And I think Streak is an example of that. Yeah. Mm. And I think that post the, the reason there's a reason it was so heavily criticized at the time that post-war era did not have nearly as much potential as it was believed to have. Yeah. But now in a world where we seem so far removed from the potential to resolve the crisis in an adequate way, there's immense nostalgia for that period. Yeah. Despite its many many defects. And of course one of the causes of the turn in the 70s was that already you had seen within the Bretton Woods order the small beginnings of what was yet to come, the euro dollar market signalling a rise in the 60s and currency speculation and capital wanting to be freer than it was. And 
some of those processes were one of the reasons why Nixon um, dropped the dollar from the gold standard in 71. And it wasn't long before Nixon took down a lot of the capital controls and and then for the next few decades, that process that had already begun before neoliberalism of rising capital mobility led to the world that we have today. Yeah, and the GATT trade rounds were already going in the 50s and 60s. They were... The world, as soon as it as the post-war system was created, it began to be uncreated. Yeah. It came into being uh, already looking to dismantle itself. The very commitment to the idea of gradually reducing the tariffs is a commitment to gradually undoing that system. Yeah, yeah. And, and we began very much with that in mind. The, the attempt to gradually reduce tariffs all over the world was there at the foundation of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There were, of course, attempts to avoid that. Keynes proposed the bank or global currency as an alternative to uh, what was eventually agreed upon, um, pegging currencies to the dollar and pegging the dollar to gold. But even that doesn't seem like that would have ended all possibility of currency speculation and moves by capital to be freer forever. And it would be difficult to manage that kind of system. And I guess one of the reasons why that kind of deal wasn't agreed upon was that the US wasn't keen on handing power to an order which was outside of its control. And to have some kind of truly global currency, there were recently proposals by left-wing people like Anis Varoufakis that we take Facebook's idea of the Libra, some kind of new global currency, and subject it to the IMF and let the IMF run Libra as a new Keynesian bank or currency. But then you've got the problem that the IMF is basically... Still, an institution that largely services the interests of powerful states and classes. You would have to then subject the IMF to some kind of, perhaps, I guess, some kind of global citizens' assembly to make it accountable to everyone. And then you're into global political integration and the contradictions between that and nationalism. And that's that's the world which Streak uh, thinks is just so out of the question that and isn't there always a some kind of Keynesian liberal at every point in this crisis some kind of Keynesian liberal saying if you would just do this technocratically correct policy yeah. the Keynesianism would work and the system would work and it would be fine the problem is always that those technocratically correct policies that they come up with have all sorts of political problems yeah. political problems because they invalidate the interests of important core groups that have too much political power for those policies to be accepted. And the Keynesian response is to just support an endless political struggle to win the argument. And the problem is that the Keynesians don't lose because they haven't won the argument. The Keynesians lose because the interest groups that they're 
program offends, the powerful states and the wealthy people who would be negatively affected by it will fill the discourse with whatever it takes to prevent those proposals from coming to fruition. And there's no political strategy that the Keynesians have to accomplish that. Mm. Uh, and, and that's part of the, the frustrating thing about that whole project. Um, mm. And I think Thomas Piketty is, is a kind of avatar for that in our contemporary discourse. Yeah. Again, a Keynesian who has a bunch of policies that if we did them would make a big difference, but cannot come to grips with the reasons why politically it can't happen. And has tried to recently in a book on ideology that mirrors within the lifespan of a sim- single theorist the development of Marxism itself. Uh, but uh, a Marxism that for Piketty was based initially on inequality rather than exploitation per se. Mm. Uh, but yes, this beginning with economics and then trying to bring in ideology as an explanation for why you can't win politically, uh, that's, that's been done. Yeah. Uh, and and we always seem to have some kind of of liberal technocrat who who needs to learn the lesson all over again. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there is a risk of going to not necessarily the ultra pessimistic conclusion that things won't work out because it seems reasonable that that conclusion might be true. Uh, But there is the extreme view that it was never possible to get off this course and there was never a way of righting the ship of the global political economy um, because... That the mistake was made when modernity happened, when the Enlightenment happened, that the mistake is much, much older. or, or, Or possibly the orthodox Marxist position of the state being so thoroughly captured by oligarchs, if the state is straightforwardly an instrument of the bourgeoisie, if it's straightforwardly an instrument of class domination, then it's not obvious how that can be undone, especially if you live in a world system where there are multiple competing states. And if there is this class domination of states in this global system. Even if you can get one, it seems unlikely you can get many to join the cause of writing the ship. And if you only get one, then the rich will move and defect against you and and sink you. I, I guess one of the ways of countering the view that we're going to have this forever. I don't think many people have this view, but there is uh, at least a possible view that that the only thing that could ever get us off this course was something like um, climate change, some kind of great leveller, as Walter Schiedel puts it. Um, And I guess Schiedel is perhaps a good person who characterises this argument that the only way in which inequality is levelled in history is through violent levelling processes, revolution, war, famine, plague, not just something like coronavirus, which Schiedel recently noted in New York Times, isn't a sufficiently big crisis on the scale of something like the Black Death to lead to 
dramatic leveling. You would need some kind of really big crisis like climate change that would level inequality um, and move us to something new. But Shidel uh, says that, well, be careful what you wish for then. And so on that Shidelian view, it looks like, oh, inequality is just inevitable. Um, and the only thing that can stop it are great levelers. Now, I guess that has some merit to it. But it's worth noting that uh, that the previous period uh, in world history of global economic, some degree of global economic integration and class domination of the state in the 19th century, that did come to an end. But the cost was, after a wave of protectionism in the late 19th century, two, tragically, two world wars were fought before the post-war settlement could be reached. And that's an absurd cost. Yeah. The two world wars and the depression are an absurd cost for what is at best a couple of decades where maybe the state looks like it maybe has some some level of control and then very quickly loses even the semblance yeah. of that. It's an absurd it cost. Yeah. An absurd, ginormous, ridiculous cost. And that's why when I started my thesis, I noticed there are so many theorists who treat the 30s as a crisis that was solved by democracy or that was solved by capitalism, that it overcame the 30s. And it, it's just hogwash. It was just a total disaster, yeah. a total disaster, a horrible, horrible disaster that we, we can only avoid thinking of in that way because we happen to be descended from the people who survived it. Yeah. Yeah. And the people who were, who were killed in, those, in, that, in that crisis are not here to talk mm. and are not here to remind us of just how many of them there were. Yeah. And how many more of us there would have been if they had lived. Yeah. And so this is the the ultimate tragic predicament that we're in, guys, if you if you take these theories of crisis seriously that we're on this kind of elongated path and on the one side you have the state continuing to adapt and continuing to manufacture legitimation narratives for itself and continuing to do just enough to kick itself along. And in the course of doing this, uh, having a society that becomes ever more heavily market-centric and ever more miserable in many ways, yeah. but a kind of, of shallow misery, you know, a, um, a misery that is still consistent with the maintenance of, of life. Mm. And on the other side of it, the kind of thing that will, will cause a lot of death. A lot of death. And I think coronavirus has been an interesting small-scale test of people's intuitions on this yeah. front. There are some people who look at coronavirus and go, that's just too much death. Mm. It's not worth trying to maintain any particular way of life if it involves that kind of death. Mm. And on the other side of it, people who treat the death as immaterial to maintaining oh, the way of living. Yeah. That the way of living, because the way of living is, is some kind of freedom or some kind of other set of values, mm -hmm. is worth the cost. And the thing is, I, it's hard to find a golden mean on an episode like this, but I'm going to try to. The golden mean, of course, is a mean where we think about both, you know, with coronavirus, both survival and having a society that is worth living in going forward. Mm. And 
not sacrificing one to the exclusion of the other, not just consulting doctors, but certainly not just consulting economists either. Um, yeah. And I don't think there's a clear or straightforward path right now out of this crisis that accomplishes that golden mean of mitigating the cost of a transition while at the same time still fighting for a life that's worth living for people that is worth um, worth being part of, a world that's worth being part of for people. But there, there has got to be some kind of way of caring about both of those things. We can't be pushed into this. Either you will burn the world down to see capitalism end, or you will keep us all miserable just so that we, we all survive. Yeah. yeah. You know, if the world as a whole, if the whole world system has become too big to fail, that's not acceptable yeah. either. Perhaps it's a bit like Max Weber's balance between the ethic of conviction and the ethic of responsibility. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's what we're going with. The golden mean for this episode, folks, is Max Weber and the ethic of conviction and responsibility. Conviction meaning caring about making the world better in your sense of what better is, and responsibility, recognizing that you can't recklessly destroy order and kill loads of people. Uh, you've got to balance these things. Politics is a violent domain. There will be some level of, of conflict and death, but you have to balance, and you can't just be reckless, and you can't treat uh, human beings as disposable. Yeah. That's the balance. Uh, Max Weber, Conviction and Responsibility. Uh, and we did an episode on Weber a while back on uh, Caesar Weber and Charisma that digs more into him. But I think that's that's a golden mean I can live with, given that this is a very difficult problem to solve. And I think all we can, you know, the thing that's dissatisfying about Weber's ethics of conviction and responsibility is that Weber's not very specific about how to balance them or what it concretely means to balance them. And I regret that I'm not going to be able to offer you today a more concrete way of balancing them. Yeah. All I can say is that if there is a way out of this crisis, it involves balancing those things mm. and not just choosing one. Yeah. So with that, I think uh, we'll wrap up for today. Uh, of course, if you would like to support the show, you can on patreon.com slash political theory 101 there are a few perks there's going to be q a episodes that are for patrons and there are other things you can get like you know you can get me to give you a quasi cambridge style supervision on on your work if you go over there and uh, you know pay the bigger bucks uh, but uh we'll be we'll be back next week we're kind of thinking about maybe doing a, uh, not next week but you know in a couple of weeks probably um uh but we're thinking about doing a kind of trilogy thing here where we do crisis today, uh, then we'll do legitimacy, and then maybe we'll do a synthesis episode on legitimacy crisis in a kind of combined way, kind of a, a trilogy thing. So hopefully you guys will like that, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.